Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find me. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 117. I'm your host, Nicholas eaton Clark, and this week we summon the courage to delve into that most treacherous of fantastical terrain, affairs of the heart. We begin with Tin and Mercury, Gilt and Glass by Lane Robbins. Lane was born in Miami, Florida, the daughter of two scientists, and grew up as the first human member of their menagerie. She attended the Odyssey Workshop, the Center for the Study of Science Fiction Novel and Short Story Workshops, and has a B.A. in Creative Writing from Beloit College. She is the author of Maledicta and Kings and Assassins, and the romantic mystery Renovation. Under the name Lynn Benedict, she writes the urban fantasy series beginning with Sins and Shadows. Her short fiction has been published in Strange Horizons, Penumbra, and Nightmare magazine. She currently resides in Lawrence, Kansas. It is read for us by Dan Kelly, an artist allowing the universe to deliver his wildest dreams. Other than a high school diploma and a few random certificates for esoteric skills like Steadicam operation and freediving, Dan is giddily sans credentials and credibility. Born just before all those iconic Americans were rubbed out, he now thrives at the northern edge of the USA, amidst paranoid prepper enclaves and socialist sleeper cells. Dan likes movies, and with a little luck, he'll be releasing his first open-source-inspired featurette, a post-apocalyptic romantic comedy titled Daughter of God, sometime in the late summer of 2016. You can learn more via the link in our show notes. And now, Tin and Mercury, Guilt and Glass. By Lane Robbins. Forty two facts about my wife, Marie. One. Marie was born in St. Paul, Minnesota in nineteen eighty four. Two. She has blue eyes and brown hair that falls just below her shoulders, not quite wavy, not quite straight. Her features are regular and even, though her upper lip is a little short and always bares her teeth. 3. 
We met five years ago during a dull business conference mixer. I thought she had a wonderful smile, especially when she turned it toward me. Four, she works as an actuary at a national insurance corporation, crunching people into statistics. Five, we moved to St. Louis together a month after we met. We rent our house, a brick ranch style with a small front lawn. Six, she has three indistinguishable friends. Jennifer, Linda, and Patricia, called Patsy, with whom she attends book club meetings, gym classes, and goes out for lunch. Seven, we were married at City Hall four years ago. I brought her pink lilies, which made me sneeze, and she wore a white dress. We had a small reception with her family and mine, a few friends. It was the best day of my life. Eight, she stands five foot five inches in bare feet. Five foot seven inches in her work heels and weighs one hundred and fifty pounds. Twenty of those pounds bother her, but not enough to prevent her from eating dessert. She's not vain. There is only one mirror in the house, and it's in the bathroom. Nine. We don't use birth control. We have no children. Ten. She carries about three thousand dollars worth of debt on her credit cards. She buys the usual stuff. New styles in clothes, groceries, meals out, movies in, and tiny glossy bottles of pink nail polish. Her nails without the paint are soft gray, almost silvery, which used to worry me, but she says that's just her. Eleven, she sweeps the house more often than I do, but leaves me the dishes. Neither of us likes to do laundry, and we should change our sheets more frequently. Twelve. We have sex twice a week on date night and whenever else we can find the time. Thirteen, she frowns at hipsters, heavily tattooed men, retro girls with scarlet lipstick, or anyone who stands out as quote counterculture unquote. Fourteen, her parents are teachers at a rural school in Wisconsin. Fifteen, I found a list of statistics hidden in her lingerie drawer. Ninety-seven pages of numbered facts about the quote average unquote woman in America, and they're all checked off. When I showed Marie the list, she stared at me for a long moment, her expression smoothly blank. I stammered an explanation. I I wasn't snooping. I was looking for the sewing kit. I trusted her. I wasn't looking for secrets. I just didn't know what this list was. Finally, she gave me a wry smile, a half shrug. It's from work. I was curious to see how I lined up against the average. She threw the list into the trash like it meant nothing to her. I know better. Ninety-seven pages long, some pages yellowed, some reeking of fresh toner. The facts ticked off with a whole series of different pens. The list means something to her. It means something to me. I wish I hadn't found it. Sixteen. Marie has no peculiar habits or hobbies, nothing to make a funny story of or complain about. My brother James's wife took up origami and leaves tiny stiff paper creatures all over the house. My friend Michael's wife is a stay-at-home mom who got fired when she got too pregnant, and now she embroiders "screw patriarchy" on children's onesies and sells them on Etsy. Seventeen, Marie reads lifestyle magazines. Several a month. Eighteen, when Marie sweeps, 
She always collects tiny splinters of broken glass from every room of the house, wedged in along the floorboards, skidding and ringing beneath the broom's bristles. I've bled more times than I can count, sliced by shards left behind from a hole I never see. 19. Marie speaks French fluently, but denies it. She whispers liquid syllables in her dreams. Qu'est-ce que voyez? 20. She calls her parents every month and talks to them in the kitchen with the door shut tight, while I rewatch the thin man. 21. Marie was not born in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1984. The private detective tells me her birth certificate is a forgery. 22. I have never met her parents. Marie does not call them once a month. Dave and Emma are a pair of actors who aren't even married. They also aren't rural school teachers, which, frankly, is a relief. Dave's spelling on Marie's birthday cards is atrocious. 23. Marie pays them $1,000 a month to take her phone calls. God only knows what they actually talk about. 24. Marie has bank accounts I don't know about. 25. My wife is a liar on a scale I can't imagine. The private detective shepherds me through the embarrassing realization I don't know my wife at all. I don't even know her name. 26. She smiled at me when we met, and I fell for her. At night, Marie asleep beside me, sleep whispering, I study her face and consider labels for the inexplicable. Witness protection. Robot. Neurosis. Spy. She wakes under my silent accusations, her lashes fluttering. I shine like tears in the moonlight, like molten silver. She looks at me, unspeaking, and I think of childhood stories. The woman with the velvet ribbon around her neck, warning her husband away. All my questions freeze. Eventually, she rolls away and takes the blankets with her. I lie exposed and cold in the dark. 27. My wife was not born in America in 1984. 28. Marie was not born in 1984, or in the 20th century. Julio, the detective, has found her fingerprints in a tiny museum that specializes in archaeological fingerprints. My wife's fingerprints are embossed buried beneath century-old glaze on ceramic pots made outside Versailles in the 1800s by an unknown artist. 29. Marie's hair, given to Julio for drug testing, contains high levels of tin and mercury. 30. I do not know who I married. I love her. I don't know anything about her. 31. Marie is better at uncovering secrets than I am. She found the detective's invoice. Now, Marie peers at me cautiously, trying to see what I have uncovered. I imagine my reflection in her eyes, an endless recursion of suspicion. Who is she? What does he know? Where did she come from? Who has he told? Who did I marry? Doubt makes me cruel. We've always had our fights. The usual explosion spurred by petty irritants. Now we fight less, but mean it more. I test her, picket her, try to catch her in a lie. 
try to prove anything I know about her is real. The only thing I know is that she strives to appear average. I assemble statistics like bullets, spit them at her over our meals together. Do you know the average woman has at least one sibling? I wonder why you don't. The average woman changes her job every seven years. Guess you'll be leaving yours soon. The average married woman your age has one child by now. I always wanted children. At breakfast, I break our silence to say, Guess your blue eyes are going out of style. I wave my tablet in her direction, the news feed clear across the screen. Better get some contacts. New demographics say the average American woman's going to be brown-eyed, brown-haired, Latino. Her hands clench on her fork, and I'm satisfied that I've landed a blow. Then her eyes flush dark and stay dark. Her blue eyes turn as brown as tree bark in a secret forest, brown as river cobbles beneath dark, fast-flowing water. My breath vanishes. What are you? She sets down her fork and tells me. 32. My wife was not born. Marie was created. 33. Marie was made in 17th century France by an alchemist for the king's menagerie, the Silver Lady, created to reflect the woman you most desired. She was a test for courting lovers, a revelatory dream for lonely others. 34. My wife is a mirror. 35. To escape the court, she learned to control her image, become blank, overlooked, average. 36. In her natural form, she is a crashing rapid of silver over a veneer of woman, endlessly fracturing, mending. Her footsteps ring like struck wine glasses and leave splinters sprinkled across the floor. 37. When she left, her kiss left tiny slices in my cheek that bled freely. 38. When she left, she stepped out of the house a ringing, sun-spangled dazzle, a kaleidoscope reflection of green grass, car, roadway, sky, my gaping face, a shimmering woman who raised her arms and melted like quicksilver, rolling into the earth. 39. I always thought Marie was special. That's the way marriage is supposed to work. You find that one special person who loves you for you, who sees something in you that no one else does. 40. Marie really is special. 41. She chose me because I am not. She saw in me an amalgamation of averages, a man who would never be the best, the brightest, the most interesting man in the room. 42. My wife is a mirror, but I'm the one that's shattered. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Lane had this to say about her story. Tin combines two of my favorite things, exploring the way people perceive each other according to their own inclinations and the potential revelatory nature of ephemera. Her list betrays her secrets and his list betrays his vulnerability. Our next story is Your Name is Eve by Michael M. Jones. Michael lives in southwest Virginia with too many books, just enough cats, a plaster penguin and a wife who once clotheslined a legendary author without remorse or mercy. His fiction has appeared in anthologies such as B is for Broken, Clockwork Phoenix 3 and A Chimerical World. He also edited Scheherazade's Facade and the forthcoming School Books and Sorcery. It is read by Deanna Sanchez, a voiceover talent and actress who has performed professionally for 14 years. She has voiced various commercials, industrials and characters and specialises in the sexy voice of powerful female roles. An avid fan of science fiction since her grandfather gave her a copy of Heinlein's Tunnel in the Sky when she was nine, Deanna also consults in geographical information systems and develops custom mapping applications for real estate and other industries. Three-dimensional visualization of spatial data is one of her favorite pastimes. And now, Your Name is Eve by Michael M. Jones. On Monday, Clancy and Eve went out to dinner. They found the ideal place in the dreams of an exhausted Wisconsin woman a young mother who'd fallen asleep on the couch while watching the Food Network late at night after an exhausting day taking care of her toddler. She dreamed of cooking with today's secret ingredient, sweet potatoes, and a host of delicious, wonderful dishes were served up by handsome men with swimmers' bodies and the faces of famous network chefs. As part of the judging committee, Clancy and Eve tested a series of dishes— from delicate appetizers to a rich soup, from spiced chicken to a dessert casserole, each using the secret ingredient to great result. Quite satisfied with the results, they gave the young woman high marks, 
granting her the title of Chef Supreme. While the new champion received congratulations and accolades from everyone she'd ever known and respected, Clancy and Eve made a quiet exit from the arena. As payment for the experience, Clancy wove some dream stuff together into a moment of pure joy and gently blew it from his fingers. It drifted away, caught by a tiny cinnamon-scented wind until it wrapped around the young mother. She'd awake with a smile on her lips, the unspoken conviction that all was right with her world, and the renewed desire to cook for pleasure. Perhaps someday it would take her further to a cookbook or a cooking show of her own. As they lingered on the dream's outskirts, Clancy and Eve made quiet conversation, exchanging their opinions of the meal their words dissipating rapidly in the way such things do in dreams. Clancy complimented the overall meal, though he admitted one dish had too much nutmeg. While he occasionally changed his appearance, tonight he wore his favorite guise, that of a tall, lean man with dark eyes and darker hair, with forgettable yet familiar features. Were someone to describe him, they'd invariably compare him to one of those character actors. The one that played the friend in that movie, you know? He was impeccably dressed, in a suit that had been fashionable in the early 1940s, and he carried the look as though it was made for him. Eve agreed on the nutmeg issue, but felt it hadn't detracted from the overall experience, which was quite splendid, if a little unsophisticated. Then, wryly, she admitted that she didn't mind that sort of thing, as the fancier things always intimidated her a little. But, she reassured Clancy, his presence always made things easier, part of why she enjoyed their outings. Unlike Clancy, she remained constant, appearing as a young woman in her early twenties, daisy blonde and blue-eyed, with soft features and an often perplexed expression, as though trying to remember something just out of reach. Tonight, she wore a cream-colored dress with blue accents, a simple affair that flashed hints of thigh every so often, catching Clancy's gaze more than once. They wrapped up their after-dinner conversation by deciding when and where to meet next time. At first, they batted around the idea of dinner again, with Clancy claiming he knew a one-legged Mediterranean fisherman who would change the way Eve saw Greek food forever. Then Eve pointed out that they did dinner a lot, and she wouldn't mind a change of pace. Eventually, a decision was reached, and they parted ways. Clancy melted into the white clouds surrounding them, while Eve drifted away on the tides of the dream winds. Neither spoke of what they did or where they went when not together, for Eve did not remember, and Clancy did not care to share. Such was the way of it all. They'd been doing this for as long as Eve could recall, the date of their first meeting lost somewhere in the past. On Wednesday, Clancy took Eve dancing in the dreams of an old southern woman who'd spent the past decade living in a nursing home and waiting for the slow, if inevitable end. She dreamed of her youth, 
of wearing short skirts and bobbing her hair and acting entirely inappropriately for the time and place, and thus fashioned for herself an idealized Prohibition-era speakeasy, complete with jazz band. Clancy, in deference to the occasion, donned a knee-length raccoon coat he'd seen once upon a time, while Eve wore an archetypal flapper's dress, showing off generous portions of leg up to the knee whenever she moved too enthusiastically, which was frequently. Clancy and Eve danced the Charleston, the shimmy, the bunny hug, and the black bottom before breaking for drinks, where a dark-eyed bartender served them in solemn silence. Laughing with delight, exhausted from their efforts, they scored a small table off to the side, where they could listen to the music and watch faceless couples go through other, less-defined dances of the era, while their dreamer fell in love all over again with a man who'd break her heart. As usual, Eve was the one to initiate conversation. As she swirled her cocktail around in its glass, watching the contents spiral, she commented upon the quaintness of it all, how dull it was compared to modern culture, and how shocking it had been once upon a time. Clancy, far more interested in watching Eve than in drinking, nodded slowly in agreement, though he wasn't inclined to elaborate on what he thought. This was nothing new. He was a man of few words, even at the best of times, as though he'd heard it all and said it all and disliked repetition. As a result, their conversation was idle, conducted between drinks and dancing, with words fading like static in the background. Oddly content with this arrangement, Clancy was surprised when the dream came to an end and it was time for them to part ways. This time, Clancy took Eve into his arms, giving in to the desire to hold her close for a long, tender moment. She nestled in against his chest, head fitting under his chin perfectly. He held her like that, allowing himself to feel something strange and warm inside, but released her before he could put a name to the feeling. It represented something, a subtle change in the way they'd interacted before, and he wasn't sure what to make of it. When Eve vanished into the mists, Clancy remained behind, surrounded by the evaporating wisps of the dream, hands buried in his pockets. For several long moments, he stood still, lost in thought, and then he too faded. In the waking world, their host startled awake, and it took several minutes before the pangs of nostalgia and lost youth faded. Her memories of youth, normally hazy and fuddled, were crystal clear for the first time in years. This was Clancy's gift to her for time well spent. On Saturday, Clancy and Eve went to a concert. Knowing that Eve was fond of a certain era of music, Clancy had gone to quite some trouble to have the perfect dream crafted for an aging hippie in Portland. Their host, who'd spent quite a few years stoned out of his mind before settling down to begrudging respectability as a music reviewer, embraced the dream fondly, made it his, and breathed life into it, conjuring up a Woodstock that almost certainly hadn't happened. The lineup in this dream included Janis Joplin, 
The Grateful Dead, The Who, Jimi Hendrix, The Beatles, The Doors, and Led Zeppelin, performing their greatest hits with a passion rarely found in the waking world. Clancy, it must be confessed, cared little for the entertainment and was uncomfortable in the outfit he wore to blend in, which he felt somehow offended his dignity. For all that, he wore it well. Perhaps it was just that sense of having lived through it all before and finding it all terribly repetitious. Or perhaps it was an underlying sense of chaos in the crowd that offended his propensity for control and order. But it was like an itch that wouldn't go away. He occupied part of his mind with ways to inspire new musicians in order to bring about something new and interesting, or at least a variation on the old. Perhaps he could bring about a neo-pastoral resurgence, fused with the jazz from the other night. Eve, however, was thrilled by the concert, radiant in her flower-child regalia, sunflowers decorating her unbound hair, she basked in her surroundings. As the music flowed through her, she was overcome by the urge to dance, tugging a protesting Clancy to his feet in a spontaneous display of appreciation. After a moment, Clancy allowed himself to give in to Eve's contagious enthusiasm. Though he'd never admit to enjoying himself, he did find the experience liberating. Perhaps he took things too solemnly, came a traitorous thought from deep within. He quickly buried it, lest it upset his carefully controlled existence. When at last the final band had left the stage, the last notes of their most famous rock anthem still vibrating in the air, Clancy and Eve made their own farewells. Impulsively, Eve drew Clancy in for a kiss, a quick peck that refused to end evolving into a long, lingering caress of the lips. She tasted of spring, of fresh flowers and gentle rains and new life, and Clancy was too startled by this to do anything other than return the kiss in kind. The dream faded around them, its essence returning to formless chaos. Eve finally pulled away, cheeks flushed and blue eyes bright. She placed a palm on Clancy's cheek, staring up into his own dark eyes for a long moment. Evidently, she approved of whatever she found there, for she smiled brilliantly before reclaiming her hand and taking a step back. When they made the arrangements for their next meeting, Clancy's voice was just a little raspy, though he was quick to regain his sense of self and equilibrium. He was sure that he wasn't supposed to let this sort of thing get to him, they went their separate ways, even as the hippie in Portland woke with a brilliant idea for a murder mystery set at a rock festival. On Tuesday, Clancy and Eve went to the zoo, an outing suggested by Clancy as a way of re-establishing the control he'd felt starting to slip. Theirs was a delightful, casual stroll through a vast array of strange creatures, many mythological and others long extinct, all housed in exacting replicas of their natural or unnatural habitats. Eve cooed over the unicorns, fed the dodos, traded riddles with the sphinx, and cringed when the kraken extended an impossibly large tentacle toward her, 
even though she was well out of its reach. She squealed with delight when a jet-black, bat-winged horse accepted sugar cubes from her hands, snorting little puffs of fire in return. Only Clancy knew that this was no dream they wandered through, but one of the few permanent structures to be found in the dream world, a refuge for things that had no place in the waking world any longer. He was a collector of sorts, fond of these lost children and lingering remnants of earlier ages. Eve, enchanted by the magnificent and bizarre menagerie that continued to reveal itself around every new turn in the path, never thought to ask where such a dream had been found, and Clancy neglected to volunteer the information. While he'd brought visitors here in the past, he'd never brought a friend, a date, here before, and he wasn't sure what this meant. Instead, they spoke of quiet inconsequentials, even though Eve looked more and more troubled as time passed. Finally, even Clancy couldn't miss the nervous pauses, the conversational stops and starts, and he asked what bothered her. Eve, tone distressed, blurted out that she'd been trying and trying and couldn't seem to remember her past as anything more than a hazy series of loose, unconnected scenes, and she wasn't even sure they were her memories. Clancy was quick to soothe her, explaining patiently that such was the nature of the world of dreams, where most things were ephemeral, and very little remained constant for any length of time. For one such as them, to live out a life in dreams, the past was an alien concept, old experiences fading away to make room for new ones. Eve, swayed by his knowing, caring tone, accepted this explanation, as one generally accepts dream logic. Clancy brushed the back of a hand against her cheek, comfortingly, and she smiled at him with such affection that it seeped into his very bones, warming him. When the time came for them to go their separate ways, it was a reluctant moment on both sides, though neither voiced this sentiment. Instead, they came together and spent a long time kissing while the hippogriffs and thalassines watched from either side of the path. Eve's body was warm and soft against Clancy's, and he took an unaccustomed pleasure in holding her closely. Hands roamed and mouths explored until finally one pushed away from the other. Clancy had his dignity to think about, Eve, her propriety. It was hard to keep the flames of gentle passion fanned, with extinct mammals watching in fascination anyway. Awkwardly, they settled upon their next meeting, and Eve fled into the ether, leaving Clancy behind to glare at the residents of the zoo defiantly. Some of the creatures capable of speech speculated upon whether their lord and master was finally thawing, but Clancy exited the zoo without a response. He had no answers for anyone, least of all himself, as to what was going on here. Certainly he'd spent time with other women in the past. Surely he'd felt something for them. But this was different. This was special. Eve was special. He waved the feelings aside, for he had work to do, 
work that wasn't being done while he mooned over a certain blue-eyed blonde. On Friday, Clancy and Eve met in the faded memory of an old resort, a beachside property that had once hosted kings and emperors, millionaires and celebrities, back in a more glamorous era. In the mortal world, it was crumbling and decayed, ruined by years of neglect, thanks to economic downturns and the fickle ways of man. Here, in the world of dreams, it lingered, a little ragged around the edges, but still in its prime. The grounds were green and immaculate, the crystal chandeliers sparkled, and the brass trim works shone, and even the air smelled of luxury and grandeur. Its halls and rooms were filled with dreamers yearning for a taste of that romantic era, and among them moved Clancy, dressed to the nines in a crisp tuxedo, with Eve looking majestic in a soft blue gown at his side. This was a night of opulence and comfort, where they were treated like royalty, every wish coming true with but a murmur. They sampled a dozen different courses for dinner, each inspired by a different cuisine, a sublime medley of tastes that defied description. From a white, flaky, citron-infused fish that seemed to burst with flavor, to Tarasco-grilled sirloin sliced paper-thin, to a subtle vegetable soup, every new dish was an experience unto itself, crafted by the ghost of a once-famous chef who'd lingered for years, hoping for such a chance. For dessert, a silent server brought out a selection of delicate spun-sugar confections. He presented them with the precision of a sacred ceremony, eyes dark and inscrutable, as he bowed once and withdrew. When at last it was over, the last morsel devoured, the chef came out from the kitchen and stared at his guests hopefully. Eve smiled, and Clancy bowed his head in silent praise, and the chef finally allowed himself to move on to what lies beyond. This led to dancing in the ballroom, where Clancy led Eve through a series of waltzes, both Viennese and regular, teaching her the moves when she seemed ready to falter, and if he ever felt frustration at her lack of experience, he never let it show, his expression ever patient and his hands gentle. As they grew more comfortable with the movements, and Eve's confidence strengthened, she dared to meet his eyes rather than watch her footsteps. Clancy was taken aback, albeit briefly, by the spark of connection between them, and it was his turn to stumble momentarily before catching himself. They'd been acquaintances, dining partners, friends, inasmuch as he had friends, and something more of late, and now he was certain that the fires burned brightly indeed for them both. When the next dance ended, they hesitated, there in the center of the ballroom. Eve leaned in to plant a feather-soft kiss on Clancy's lips, and through mutual, unspoken decision, they left the dance floor. They progressed through the halls and up the stairs, Clancy leading the way to what was unquestionably the finest room in the entire resort. Unfortunately, its understated beauty and expensive decor went almost entirely unnoticed, as by now 
the two had eyes only for one another. The second the door shut behind them, Clancy pulled a very willing Eve into his arms, and they resumed kissing without restraint or hesitation. As they touched one another, clothes seemed to fall away with the merest tug. Every time bare skin met bare skin, there was a fresh surge of electrifying desire. The room's light faded until all that remained to illuminate the lovers was the not-quite-full moon hanging outside, reflecting off the ocean waters. Their bodies glowed, Clancy's a pale silver, and Eve's a gentle golden, and they became one, making love in a way found only in fiction, movies, and dreams. Eventually, they curled up together, tired and satisfied, Eve tucked into Clancy's arms as though she might never leave. He ran his fingers through her hair, feeling that sense of completion, of perfection, and regretted that for all his power he couldn't stop time. And even in the world of dreams, one can find sleep. It came easily for Eve, though Clancy remained awake giving serious thought to his next move. He knew what he wanted, but the timing was not yet right. Not yet. Some things had to be done properly, or not at all. In the morning, they prepared to go back to their separate lives, and it was the hardest separation yet. They exchanged words of affection and desire, regret and longing. Finally, Eve stole her hands from Clancy's before she broke into tears. Clancy watched her go, satisfied that this would be the last time the day parted them. A smile tugged at his lips, he who rarely smiled when alone, and he went to make his preparations. On Saturday, Clancy arrived early at their designated meeting spot, a small Parisian outdoor cafe conjured up by a woman who dreamed of the places she knew she'd never visit. As he sipped at a drink he barely tasted, his hand frequently darted into a pocket, checking to make sure the small velvet box it contained was still safe. In that box was an elegantly subtle diamond ring, the gem carved from a tiny piece of the purest moment of perfection he could find. He went over the way he'd present it once more, determined to do it just right. After all, with an untold number of centuries lying ahead, he wanted this moment to be the one that shone brightly, unforgettable and eternal. And he waited. And he waited. And Eve did not come. All nights end and all dreamers awake sooner or later. With no sign of Eve and the cafe fading into mist around him, Clancy reluctantly left the dream, a profound sense of unease tugging at his very soul. If Eve would not or could not come to him, then clearly he had to find her. As a dull ache throbbed deep within him, he accepted that the time for pretenses and play-acting was over. Slowly, unwillingly, the lord of dreams raised his aspect, 
shrugging off that fragile mask of humanity he'd adopted for dealing with mortals. And then he went for a walk. For three days and nights, Clancy walked through dreams. On the first day, he explored the dreams of mortals, touching among them as they slept, looking everywhere for the missing Eve. Steadily, methodically, he explored them all, young and old alike. In his wake, he left unsettled sleepers and crying babies, inexplicable bouts of insomnia and night terrors, far too intent on his quest to be gentle. Still, there was no sign of Eve, no trace of her passing. She was not to be found in any of the dreams they visited in the past. On the second day, Clancy took his search into the dreams of the mysteries, all of those strange and supernatural beings who chose to live unseen amongst an unknowing humanity, or in hidden pockets tucked away in strange corners of the world. Here, too, he had no luck, though he tore through protections and wards designed to protect their casters from nocturnal intrusions. Even those who feared nothing else were disturbed by the careless, uncaring way in which the Lord of Dreams bullied into their privacy and moved on. Mystics and psychics, shapeshifters and monsters, they all shared the same experience, and all they knew was that Clancy sought something without success. But Clancy did not care to explain himself or even look back since they could not lead him to Eve. On the third day, Clancy stepped outside the world proper, into the restless dreams of the earth itself. Here dwelt the inverse ones, unspeakable and alien, forever exiled from the mortal world and perpetually trying to force their way back in. Here he moved with care and grace, picking his way cautiously, for he and the inverse ones were of an equal power. They were older, but weakened by their long absence from the waking world. Only a thin truce kept things civil, so he did not overstay his welcome, remaining only long enough to ascertain that even in this place there was no sign of Eve. On the fourth and final day, Clancy grew desperate and the repeated failures of his search eating away at his patience. He journeyed to the farthest reaches of his realm, where the membranes between worlds are at their thinnest, and sleep is forever intertwined with death. He raised his hand to tear down the walls and boldly invade the kingdom of no return, but was stopped, a mighty presence blocking his way with a great shadow and a thunderous whisper. As Clancy protested, the voice spoke to him, the words quiet and implacable. It spoke of pacts and powers, boundaries and responsibilities. It murmured disapprovingly of souls kept past their time, of arrogance and trespasses, of prices and penalties. When Clancy disregarded this, powerful wings buffeted him back, dancing swords of fire, making it quite clear he would not invade the realm eternal. Such was not for him the Lord of Dreams. The voice faded to nothing, leaving Clancy alone in the gray depths of his despair. 
Like one of the travelers through his realm, he woke to see what he'd missed before. A dark figure moving through dreams as his shadow. The presenter who'd unveiled a secret ingredient of sweet potatoes. The speakeasy's bartender. A hollow-eyed drummer at the concert. The flame-snorting, bat-winged equine in the zoo. That final waiter at the resort hotel. There, out of the corner of the eye at every turn, flitting past, immediately forgotten. Subtle and omnipresent. And Clancy knew, as though the story unfolded before his eyes. A young woman, daisy blonde and blue-eyed, with soft features, lying still and absent in a Des Moines hospital her mind cut loose to drift on the winds of his realm, a friendship evolving into courtship, then into love affair, their relationship allowed to progress under the shadow of dark wings, a figure visiting the young woman, fingers brushing her eyelids, arms gathering her up, taking her away at last. Clancy had been too late. Had he reached out to her, rendered her a thing of dreams, taken her into his world for good just one day sooner, and untouchable? No. Even he could not challenge this power, which ultimately claims all who dream. Clancy's grief exploded across the world, millions of people startling awake with a palpable sense of loss and longing for something they couldn't identify. Parents rushed to comfort children, lovers clung to one another for reassurance, dogs howled, and for a night the world mourned without knowing why. For those who'd known the young woman, he shared just a fraction of the joy he'd once felt with her and they knew she'd been loved by something great and powerful. He returned to his work. The waking world soon forgot about that night of grief and despair. One day, Clancy grew lonely. It was a Monday, for such things always happen on Mondays, it seems, when he had an idea. Long-legged and long-fingered, he stalked through a thousand dreams, gathering a wisp here and a wisp there. He wove them together with delicate, painstaking care, adding a cat's breath, a child's laugh, a raindrop's touch, a dandelion's puff. He gave his creation a mother's love and a father's protection, a sibling's tolerance and a friend's rivalry a teacher's admiration, and an enemy's respect. He shaped and molded according to his memories, stepping back when he was satisfied with the results. And yet, it was not what he had imagined. Like a dream, it had changed without rhyme or reason. This one was in her late twenties, a dark-eyed brunette with long curls and lush curves dressed in blue jeans and a green Tuesday University sweatshirt. Her eyes fluttered open with the spark of life as Clancy watched, and she looked ever so out of place, 
lost and bewildered. Wrapped in his mortal persona once again, Clancy slowly approached, exuding an air of comfort and reassurance. The woman looked to him, hope and confusion warring in her expression. She felt so strange, she admitted. She had no idea where she was or how she'd come there. She didn't even remember who she was. But for some reason, she knew she could trust him. Were they friends? A shadow swept over them, a cloud blocking the sun in a sky lacking both clouds and sun. Clancy, gaze intent upon the young woman, did not notice. He smiled gently at her, and in a manner suggesting easy familiarity, said, Your name is Eve. A good romance, real or fictional, is fraught with unexpected twists. That's just a given. Michael's decision to throw in some literal dream dates takes it to the next level. He has noted that the story came to him in, you guessed it, a dream, and that, like most dreams, it is open to interpretation. If you'd like to share your dreams or just your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And please be sure to give the credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will have their relationship status permanently changed to It's Complicated. Now there is a delicious chocolate cake and a cup of coffee waiting for me, so I'm off. Have a great week. I'll see you next time. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.